0: Greetings, everyone. This is Hear Her Sports, and I am Elizabeth Emery. With summer heat in full swing here in Cleveland, I am happy to have an episode about ocean sailing to share with you. And in the show notes, I've included a couple of links to books on sailing. Hear Her Sports is now an affiliate of IndieBound, meaning that books you buy using links from our show notes and our newsletter earn us small amounts of actual money. I'm grateful for your efforts to support us in this way. It really does make a difference, thank you. Just like in past years, here her sports is taking August off and will restart with regularly scheduled programming after Labor Day. One last thing before we get going, today's episode is sponsored by woman owned business Biscuit Heads. Owner Shonda Moy, a former star collegiate softball player, currently has a crowdfunding campaign to purchase a biscuit mobile so she can drive to a bunch of Cleveland neighborhoods and surrounding areas, spreading the joy of homemade, delicious, fresh, made-to-order biscuits and biscuit sandwiches. If you buy a gift card now, its value will be 130% of what you paid. So invest $100 and over the next year, you'll get $130 divided into four gift cards to buy some yummy biscuit sandwiches. There are, of course, lots more details about supporting Shonda on the site she is using, Honeycomb Credit. Please head to the show notes page of this episode to find the link to invest in the biscuit mobile. That's at hearhersports.com. The link is also in the bio of her Instagram at cle dot Biscuit Heads. Now let's get on to the episode with Robin Lesh. She is a design engineer with American Magic, a racing boat getting ready for the America's Cup. The America's Cup is the premier sailing race and the oldest trophy in international sport. Boats are designed specifically for the America's Cup and are incredibly fast, often using the most modern technology available. Robin manages weight and center gravity of the boat, as well as being in charge of 3D printing, 3D scanning, and 3D virtual reality. Robin grew up in Washington State and has been sailing since she was six days old. She graduated from MIT in 2016, where she spent four years as a varsity skipper on the MIT sailing team and earned her degree as a mechanical engineer, ocean engineer. As you will hear in the episode, we talked well before COVID hit. After a five-month hiatus, the boat Robin is working on is back in the water as of this week in New Zealand. In the show notes, I've included links for videos of the boat's first sail there. Welcome, Robin. Thank you for finding a moment to be on the podcast.
1: Thank you. I appreciate having me.
0: Sure. So I'm sort of jumping ahead a bit, but speaking of finding a moment, we really had to work to find a time to chat. Can you talk about your work schedule? It seems really intense.
1: Yes, our work schedule is quite intense and uh, fairly unpredictable. The basic schedule is 7.30 to 6, 7.30 a.m. to 6 p.m., but that is sprinkled with... Early starts, which are six or six thirty, and then working till whenever you need to to get your stuff done. And then occasionally there's a day off, but we have one day. Not, actually, no day notice. We know the day before because it's weather based ah. or boat based. So if there's a breakage, then we may have a day off. If there's no wind, we may have a day off. So <laughs> it's living living moment to moment, pretty much.
0: So I mean, without a breakage or no wind, you're working seven days a week.
1: We are working pretty much seven days a week. Usually there's a break as you're knowing approximately once per week, right. um, but it's never guaranteed. For example, Thanksgiving through Christmas, we did 20 days.
0: Wow. I called
1: it a 20-day week. So Monday was four days, Tuesday was four days, <laughs> Wednesday was four days. And by the time we got to the 17th day, we were in a Friday. So we're in the 16th day. So, you right. know, however, however one can think about it.
0: Right. But. And our early morning starts for a particular reason.
1: Yes. So the typical time is starting at 7:30 and then working through the day. Uh, an early start, a six or 6:30, would be because there is better wind towards the beginning of the day. So our process from getting the boat in the shed where it stays at night out onto the water to sail, boat rolls out of the shed. The mast is attached by crane. And then the boat is craned into the water, and then all the onboard checks are done to make sure all the systems are working, and then we're off the dock. And that process takes about two and a half hours. So if we have an early start at 6.30 and we or 6, we roll out, usually at 6.30 or 7. Two hours later, that's 9. So we're already partway into the morning. So if the best wind is between, say, 10 and noon, we really have to do an early start to get on the water.
0: Right. So let's backtrack a little bit. What exactly are you working on?
1: <laughs> I My official job description is weight and center of gravity. So I'm technically in charge of everything that goes on or off the boat, tracking it through our design stage, which starts before anything actually exists in reality, making sure that what we predict we will build will match the rule, will be legal, that we can actually sail it. And then when the boat starts to be built, tracking how the boat is progressing, and then in this stage where we're tuning it for racing, helping to give the data for decisions about what stays on the boat for racing, and what has to come off. That's my job description. That's probably about 20% of what I actually do. <laughs> the rest of it is 3D printing and 3D scanning, so I will design any sort of fixture mount jig fairing controllers in CAD, and then print them and then either give them to the electronics department to wire or to the aero department for a mock-up or to the hydraulics department to help an in install or etc.
0: Are you able to describe the current America Cup boats?
1: The current America's Cup boats are quite odd looking. If anyone's familiar with sailboats, they are a monohull, which means they have one hull. Unlike the last America's Cup where a catamaran where they had two hulls. The hull looks like a pretty normal boat, but then it has these two weird foil arm things that stick out the sides. When I describe it in person, I just stick my arms out to the sides, sort of like a a crab or or something. They've got these two weird arms with foils on them, so sort of like an airplane wing. Instead of aerofoils, they're hydrofoils, so they're foils under the water, which lift the boat out of the water. So when the boat is sailing, there's only two sort of surfaces under the water supporting it and then struts coming up from those hydro surfaces, and the boat is suspended in the air.
0: And when I was getting ready for the interview, I saw that the weight is super important. Like, you have to be exactly the same weight as everybody else. Is that true? I, I was a little bit confused <laughs> <Yes>. about that.
1: <laughs> yes. Yes, so this is my first America's Cup. Many of my coworkers have done multiple cups before, and this rule is a little bit unusual in that there is no min and max weight. You don't have any flexibility in how much you can weigh. Usually, you'd want to be lighter on a lighter day if there's less wind, and then you want to be heavier on a heavier day or something like that. This rule, you have no flexibility at all. We have to be an exact weight with a 1% measuring margin. In other words, I get 1% below the maximum for scale error and difference in gravity. So... There's 12 kilo difference between here and the UK in terms of how much the boat will weigh because of the change in gravity. (laughs) Wow. Who knew? So factors like that. I know, right? I was like, well, isn't gravity 9.82? But it varies based on your latitude.
0: That's incredible. So where are the compromises needing to come from?
1: Everywhere. So compromises have to come from all over the boat. From the beginning, we were like, okay, We need to make everything as light as possible. Anywhere we can save weight, we need to do it. So the mechatronics and electronics and systems divisions have done a great job of saving every ounce that they can everywhere. Uh, And then we can put any weight that we do have into control systems or structuring the boat or speed-making devices.
0: It sounds like it's hard to get to that weight. Is that correct? Like a normal boat would be much heavier.
1: Yes, yes. This boat... With sailors, it's 7,000 kilos. Without sailors, it's 6,400 kilos. So times 2.2. It's a 75-foot boat, and it is 1,400 pounds. I only work on kilos nowadays. It's 6.5 times 2.2, so 1,500 pounds. So it's a huge boat that's quite light, and a bunch of that weight is in the foils.
0: Oh, okay.
1: So the hull itself is... Super, super, super light. A few thousand pounds.
0: If I got onto the boat, would I notice right away that it was light or different? Or, I mean, other than how it looks with the, the arms.
1: It's a race boat. It's definitely a race boat. I remember growing up on cruising boats. You know, there's lines everywhere. And, you know, here's your halyard. Here's your Cunningham. Here's your sheets. Here's your winches. Here's everything. The first race boat I got onto, I was like, where are all the lines? <laughs> it's as minimal as possible. So, for example, the deck is pretty much entirely bare. There are no extra features of any sort. It's as smooth and as aerodynamic as possible. The reason for that is this boat, unlike most sailboats, is going at 40 miles an hour. So 40 miles an hour, any small, like, you're like, ah, oh, it's just a, you know, a, a mount for a this, or it's a, just a bolt that attaches this. Any small feature will create a lot of turbulence, and that turbulence is drag, and that drag will make the boat go slower. And since we're trying to win the America's Cup, we're trying to go as fast as, as possible. So anything that is not absolutely necessary is not there.
0: I'm so glad you said 40 miles per hour, because I've never known how to translate... Knots to miles per.
1: Hour. <laughs> yeah, I did. I did convert. They're similar. You're not wildly off if you think of them as the same. Miles per hour are faster. So if it's forty knots, then it's more in miles per hour by like some. It's like forty-four or something. It's not oh, crazy. Cool. Be more impressed than the number, and you'll you got it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's fast on a boat. Forty miles per hour.
1: Yes. Yes, it sure is. I mean, we've. Gone over that.
0: There's a race in Sardinia coming up, I mean, pretty quickly. What are you hoping to learn there?
1: Yes, there sure is. The races before the America's Cup, starting with the one in Sardinia, are really interesting and important because they are the only times where we can sail our AC 75 against other AC 75. We are not allowed to go out and just race one team versus another team casually. We have to sail on our own separately until these events. And these events are the only times where we can line up one next to each other and see how fast we really are before we get to the really important regattas in New Zealand.
0: That's cool. Yeah. Who's going to be there? Everybody?
1: These events will have everyone at them because it is required. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay. Uh, America's Cup is weird in that each time it happens, the person that won the Cup gets to make the rules for the next one which seems like a bit of an advantage, but it's also a heck of a lot of work. So maybe it balances out. It is required to sail in these events if you want to sail in the America's Cup Series.
0: Got it. And will you be there? And what are you going to be watching for?
1: I will not be there. I will be located in Bristol, sort of monitoring the build of Boat 2 a little bit. And then I will head straight to New Zealand, where our base will be set up in... June or July or so.
0: How much will you be able to change after the Sardinia
1: race? So technically this boat, boat one is it's a race boat because it's going to race the series, but it is not a boat that will race the America's cup. So we can implement things that we learned in these events into boat two that will race for the America's cup.
0: I guess I'm wondering a little bit about the turnaround time of manufacturing different parts or creating different parts.
1: Yes. The turnaround time is always a challenge because the one thing in the America's Cup that we don't have in excess is time. There's very, very limited time. So that's one of the reasons the 3D printed parts are so useful is that I can CAD them, print them overnight, and hand them to whoever needs them either next morning or a couple hours later. So that instant turnaround is super valuable because something breaks and we need this thing or we need to make this change and go sailing at six a.m. the next day. It's that sort of invisibility of, of turnaround. You don't need to go to a machine shop and wait three days.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: In terms of build of the boat, it's sort of amazing how the design works. So the design overlaps with the build. In other words, we're trying to build the boat so fast that the designers release the parts of the boat that they know are going to be a certain way. And while those are being built, the designers kind of figure out the rest. (laughs) So designs are released as they are needed, in essence, because we want to condense the schedule as much as we can, because then we can learn from the prior boat and implement those changes or that knowledge further down the line. So that puts a lot of pressure on the builders because they don't have any information about what is going to go on top of this or what is going to be the next shape or what's going to be the next piece. And it puts a lot of pressure on the designers because the builders are almost done with the last thing and now they need the next thing. But it's the only way to build a boat as fast as possible with the most maximum information.
0: Yeah. Talk a little bit about how big your team is and you're so tightly linked in what needs to be accomplished and how. So talk about how that works and how it's been to learn how to work with a team that big and with the time pressure.
1: Our team is fairly big, and it's also a little bit spread out because we're in multiple locations across the globe, in Bristol, Rhode Island, and in Florida right now, and then we have an office in Spain, well, soon to have New Zealand. So we are really spread out. But I think one of the keys for me was to understand what, each person's sort of area of responsibility is. It's a very sort of free flowing structure, but everyone has their responsibilities. For example, if anyone needs anything weight related, they come to me, or 3D printing related, or scanning related, or anyone needs any display information, they go to my coworker, Elvira, et cetera. For me personally, understanding what everyone's area was made it much easier to go to exactly the person I needed wherever they were based.
0: Had you worked with such big groups? I mean, I think working on a team can be really terrific and it can also be really terrible. So I'm just curious about, you know, like your experience <laughs> yes. and how that's been to be working yes. on such an important, big project with a, with a timeline, like a really specific timeline.
1: It is a very specific timeline. Yes. This team is pretty amazing. You mentioned how large it is and every once in a while I noticed how large it is, but it seems small. Like I know everyone, I can chat with everyone I know each department and it almost seems like we're understaffed because everyone is doing so much work and there's still more to be done. So it never seems like the team is huge because everyone is working on important things all the time, which is interesting. (laughs) Right. the team dynamic is awesome. I, it's similar to being in school where it's automatic respect, automatic. You're believed to be capable. You're believed to be able to do what you're asked over. you're, Or alternatively, more often, you're able to figure out what is important and then do it. People believe in you, uh, and that is really, really important. I found that trying to work in a place that does not give respect is detrimental to me and what I find important and how I use for the person (laughs) gives me bad habits in terms of how I interact with people and all sorts of things. So places that respect their employees or their teammates is the most important factor to me.
0: And we'll be right back. Now a little bit more about Shonda Moy of Biscuit Heads. Since she soon will be driving around in a new biscuit mobile, bringing people of Cleveland biscuit sandwiches, I've asked her why biscuits. Because biscuits are good. They're buttery and flaky. Like, why not love biscuits? When I lived in the South, like, that was just a staple, right? Every menu, you would have biscuits and pimento cheese and deviled eggs. Everyone has some sort of relationship with biscuits, right? You talk about biscuits, you describe biscuits, they see it, they smell it. Like, it definitely hits a note with them. It's that comfort food. And when people eat them, like, they think about, you know, their childhood or that time when they had delicious biscuits and it's been so long and now they're, you know, having some with us. So being able to provide that, you know, bringing that nostalgic feeling to folks of Cleveland. What's been your favorite part of the job?
1: My favorite part of the job is probably being Santa. So most mornings I'll go to the printer and I will take off everything that I printed overnight, which is usually quite a bit, and I'll put it in a silver bag. And then I will go back to the base and I'll walk in that round and give out presents <laughs> to everyone who <laughs> requested or commissioned sort of uh design projects and then talk to them about how they look and if there's something we can do better or if I had a different idea on how to do something or a better way to do a feature or another idea for some other component. So that's my favorite part. That is fun. Is that back and forth with a design to make it better.
0: When you were in school at MIT, did you know that this job existed? Like that somebody was doing this thing?
1: I had no idea that this job existed. <laughs> I was lucky in that I somehow I kind of begged my way into this very odd program, which was go and visit the Oracle base for three days. I still don't quite know why the program existed, but I convinced someone to let me into it, and so I got to visit Bermuda for three days. And that was the only way that I knew the America's Cup world existed, kind of. I mean, I'd seen America's Cup on TV and it was amazing. It was kind of like, whoa. But I didn't know anything about the fact that there are bases and there are teams of hundreds of people and there's design and there's all this stuff. So I got that tiny sneak peek, but I kind of forgot about it, I guess. <laughs> and went on with my school and exploring and sailing and et cetera. And then... Through Oakless got this job offer. i um, actually working with some people that I met on that trip. So it's sort of the world comes full circle.
0: What had you thought you would be doing after school, given your degree?
1: My degree from MIT, mechanical engineering, ocean engineering, often goes in two directions. One is offshore oil and gas mm. or military, like military research. And I have inverse interest in both of those.
0: I know, I was going to say, I think you picked the best option.
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I decided pretty quickly I was not going to go in either of those directions. But my major is quite small. It was four or five graduating students my year. So I figured, well, there must be a lot of other stuff to do, just nobody does it. So I decided to do whatever else I could find. So graduating from MIT, I went to Oakliff and decided to explore the sailing world, see what happened. My bailout was fly back to Seattle live with my parents for a month, get a job in Seattle, uh, working something random and then apply for jobs in San Francisco and then move to San Francisco. That was my like plan B. If the sailing world falls apart, I I have something else that's cool and it'll be, it'll be fun as well. And that kind of like gave me the freedom to just jump in and see what happened.
0: Do you still get to sail regularly?
1: That is the one downside of my job. I sail significantly less than I have in the last seven years. College sailing in school, I sailed six days a week. Two of those days were regatta days, so that was solid 20-something, well, more than 20. A lot of hours of sailing per week. Uh, And Then at Oakwood Sailing, I was sailing every day, and here I sail every couple months. (laughs) So significantly less sailing, but I will always be a sailor and i will return to racing when my job gives me more time
0: right and what are your long-term goals like what would be next after this
1: what is next after this is a really interesting question because i've been told multiple times by many many people on the america's cup that the america's cup is very weird because you put your full essence into a job for three years and then it stops it ends there's nothing else it's a dead end um sorry not dead end because if you do well in the Cup, maybe hypothetically in a year or six months or eight months, you'll be hired to another team. But in between, you're it just ends. There's nothing. You go from full 24-7 constant to, oh, well, done. Back up and everyone go their own ways. So, the only thing that's pretty determined that I'll do after this is take a vacation.
0: Sure.
1: Um, That seems to be the most recommended activity post-America's Cup. Job-wise, beyond that, one of the reasons I became the 3D printer lady, queen, whatever, is that I have thought 3D printers are super, super cool for a very long time, and I haven't gotten any opportunity to use them. So, because they weren't being used here, I just started printing things and through the last two years have learned a huge amount about additive manufacturing. We're partnered with Stratasys, and I work with gentlemen at Stratasys weekly, sometimes daily, definitely weekly, and I go to events with them and talks for Stratasys and 3D printing conferences. So I could go into an additive manufacturing direction. I could stay in sailing. I could go to design because I've learned a lot of CAD and 3D modeling. There's a lot of different areas. I have always figured that if I can understand what a company wants from their employees in a job, I can present my unusual experiences in a way that makes me one of the only candidates that has anything like my experiences. It's on me to state what I have done in a way that is attractive to what the job needs. But if I'm able to do that, maybe I can go in whichever direction I would like. We'll see.
0: Did I hear you say that you were the one that brought 3D printing to the project?
1: I played a huge part in bringing 3D printing to the project. We had an Ultimaker, which is a little desktop printer, which I'm looking at one. We still have a couple. And I was learning the CAD software because I decided that I should probably learn the modeling software that we use. And then I was like, well, nobody's using this printer, so I'll just print this thing and see what happens. And then I did. And someone said, oh, Robin, you're using the printer. Yeah. And I was like, uh, yeah, was that okay? And they're like, yeah, yeah. Could you print me this thing? And I was like, sure. So I started printing things on the Ultimaker. And then we were printing straight out on one Ultimaker. And I said, okay, uh, <laughs> we need a second one. <laughs> so we bought two Ultimakers. And then we we're printing straight out on those two. And the quality is fairly good for a desktop printer. But we needed something that was a lot faster mm-hmm. just for all the things that were being needed So I said, okay, we need a real industrial 3D printer. And I looked at 3D printer companies and reached out to a couple. And Stratasys was really the absolute perfect fit. They had some partnerships with Penske Racing, which is one of our team principals. And they were super excited about starting a partnership. So we have a performance partnership with Stratasys. And that relationship is wonderful. Uh, We print crazy things for crazy applications, and they help us do so. That's so
0: cool that everybody jumped right in when you started. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you for making the time to talk to us. Is there anything that we didn't get to that you would love to talk about?
1: So the other two things I do is 3d scanning and virtual reality, but I don't know that I can talk much about what we do with the virtual reality. I can put the boat in virtual reality and that helps people look at the boat before it really exists.
0: Oh, that's cool. Wow.
1: Yeah. And then 3D scanning, we can scan something to check what its shape really is, compare it to CAD and see how the build shape compares to the design shape. And then we can also scan a part, put it into CAD and then create a shape around that piece. We can make parts fit reality without a lot of shaping and fitting and sanding. The scanner is very valuable. It's a cool tool.
0: Yeah, I saw you working on the hull, which seemed really cool. You were scanning the hull and making a a top piece, I guess.
1: Yes. Yes, that was a cool little project. So that was scanning the um, sort of the fairing around the bobstay. So bowsprit is the thing that's the weird pole that sticks out off the front of the boat. The bobstay is the wire that holds the bowsprit, And then that bobstay goes into a hole in the hull. And that hole in the hull is a shape. And so I scanned the bobstay slot, that hole in the hull, with the 3D scanner, put it into CAD, designed a fairing. To make that hole smooth to fill that smooth and match the whole shape and then i printed that shape on the printer and then that went to the boat builders and they installed it and sanded it and paired it so that was a full circle project yeah, yeah yeah
0: i just think that's so awesome well thanks so much thank you very much for being here i appreciate it
1: certainly elizabeth i'm always excited to talk to anyone one of my reasons personal reasons for taking this job is that i can share what it's like as a young engineer in engineering in general and then sailing and that there is a huge amount of advanced technology in sailing and that it's an exciting place to be and just to not exactly mentor, but support any young engineers in any way <laughs> or engineers of any age. So anything I can do to share or encourage or talk or anything, I'm always, always 100% down for Great.
0: I always find it interesting where these jobs that, you know, like, how would you know about it? But it's such a fascinating, really terrific opportunity for someone.
1: Yes. Yeah, exactly. One of the things I figured out is it's impossible to know that these jobs exist. And it's impossible to – I mean, some people can do it, and that's amazing. Fixate on one job and decide that is what they're going to do and get there and do it. I think it's much more – Realistic and more fulfilling to figure out sort of a job area and then be excited about it and do everything that pops up. Just sort of go after something and see what happens. So, for example, in sailing, I just started Oakland because it gave me the most knowledge, connections, opportunities, information about sailing, the sailing world. And then I jumped on every opportunity that arrived, every event, every meeting every talk every i just said yes a lot and was excited about what i was doing and that excitement really opens doors and lets you see lots of areas and lets you explore and get further more easily than chasing one specific thing decide what you're excited about and then go do it
0: awesome all right thanks so much Me. thanks elizabeth yep bye 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 and that's it for this week's show. Thank you so much to Robin who is incredibly busy right now and made time to get me some information in the past couple days. This was truly an example of if you need something done, ask a busy person to do it. The women on this show are always super amazing and it's been an honor these past several years to introduce them and share more of their terrific stories. It's always fun to hear their actual voice and find out what's important to them through their own words. I'm sending all of you a huge thank you, well wishes for health and lots of love for the rest of this rough summer. And once again, for those of you in the U.S., please register to vote and send in your vote-by-mail application if you are planning on voting that way. See you all in the fall. Bye-bye.
1: Women's Running Stories, where we explore the intersection between running and life. Because every woman who is committed to a running journey has a story to tell, and this is where you'll find those stories. I am host and producer Sheree Louise Turner. I'm a 53-year-old runner, and together with original music by musician and runner Cormac O'Regan, we bring these inspirational stories to life. Please join us to fuel your adventures.